you set apart your own majesty and took on human flesh that we might that we might know you and find fellowship with you and lord one day even share in your glory thank you for your grace in that lord and as we as we open the word tonight we pray that you would teach us by your spirit that's really the only way we learn <laughs> if your holy spirit would speak to us lord tonight that is our desire help us hear your voice thank you for the privilege of worshiping like we have in jesus name amen amen thanks you guys you know uh Andy uh, opened our worship time with this uh, thought that uh, we are we're called to worship and we're called in holiness to worship. And the reality is, is that, that uh, uh, tonight we're going to speak of worship even more. Now, you might say, well, we're in the Psalms. What else do you expect? Yeah, well, we know that there's a lot in the Psalms, right? We're going to be in Psalm 75 and maybe even in Psalm 76 if um, the Lord will give us liberty here tonight. Um, Psalm 75. And we are in this section of the Psalms where, where we have quite a number of consecutive Psalms penned by Asaph or his, his descendants, more than likely his descendants. Um, we, we spoke of that last week, and I think uh, this evening we're going to discover as well that what is described here is likely connected with the end of the age, the end of, of uh, the, even the age to come, the judgment. And we are, we're going to start here in Psalm 75, uh, where um, the title, at least in my and the NASB says, God abases the proud and exalts the righteous. And what in the world is that about? Uh, well, it, let's start off verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. And I would say this is simply worship, right? And there's something to be said about worshiping simply. We had a, uh, an acoustic set tonight, and we don't need amplification to worship God. We don't have to have a big production to worship God. In fact, you can worship God in the privacy of your own closet. You can worship God by yourself on a high mountain or in a low valley. Uh, you can worship God wherever and whenever. In fact, as Andy pointed out, we're called to be worshipers of God always. I, I think um, the illustration of worshiping God while you're brushing your teeth might be stretching it just a little bit, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you're counting your blessings. Lord, I count one, two, three, four, five teeth today. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? And bottom line, if our hearts are turned to, toward the Lord, that is what worship is all about. Now, one big piece of worship is thanksgiving. Um, simply giving thanks. And I have to say that uh, uh, it's important for us to understand that, that giving thanks not only sets us up to exalt God for who he is, but it helps us reorient our life. Um, 
I don't know about you, but when I feel like, man, things are just not going well, and I start navel-gazing and thinking only about myself and, and everything, the one thing that really helps me out is to stop and count my blessings. Uh, you know, some of you probably know that old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. Uh, how many of you remember that? Fewer and fewer of us are, are in that space to recall that. But that there is great treasure in recalling our blessings and simply entering into thanksgiving. And that's where the psalmist starts. We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks. And, and that is the place of the turning of our heart toward the Lord, perhaps even away from our circumstances and realigning our heart and mind, our, even the, the trajectory of our life upon the Lord. Now, he says, for your name is near. It's important to know that the name of God uh, is recognized throughout the Old Testament, but when it's a specific name, typically in your, uh, your English text, it's going to be capitalized. Um, this particular reference to the name of God is not capitalized. In other words, it is simply suggesting it's your, your name, what we call you. It is, it is a generic sense. It is not the specific of, say, Yahweh Tzitkanu, which is, which is God, you are my righteousness, or uh, Yahweh or Jehovah Jireh, Lord, you are my provider. We have those references throughout the Old Testament, but this is a general sense. Your name is near. Now, the, the word near is interesting. Um, most of us think of the idea of nearness as being proximity, right? Um, and, and indeed, that is the case. Uh, it does indeed speak of proximity, but it does more than that. Um, the word near here uh, speaks of one who is related to or kindred, kin of us. So we could say that there, uh, the Lord is near in that he is our kin, we are his kin. Um, in other words, we're his children, right? And we belong to him. And even as we belong to him, he belongs to us because he is our father. Um, more than that, it means allied, one who is uh, set apart in, in, um, in being on the same team, if you will. It's, it's, it's God's ally with us that makes us victorious. It's not us in ourselves. It's God himself who is victorious. Um, in addition, it means neighbor and even next door neighbor, one who is really very close in proximity. And I think that's important for us to remember as well. God is never far away. Now, um, Psalm 145, verse 18 says, he is near to all who call upon him, to all upon, call upon him in truth. So what's it take to be near to God or for God to be near to us? 
It's just a phone call away, right? You don't even have to pick up your iPhone or your razor or whatever. It doesn't matter because God is as close as your call. I don't know about you, but that gives me great comfort. Um, I, I, I know all of us have been in situations where all we can do is say, oh God, please, or oh God, help. Um, and, and maybe it's in a traffic situation and suddenly somebody stops right in front of you and you say, God, help. And he's right there. He's near to those who call upon him. Now, the basis of the psalmist's worship, however, is given in the words wondrous works. Your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. That is his surpassing extraordinary works. And I think we could even say his interventions. In fact, as we, we think of God's wondrous works, what are they? They're certainly, it's creation, right? But it's a whole lot more than that. I think uh, for us in the contemporary setting, uh, a miracle is a wondrous work. It's God's intervention into uh, the mundaneness of our life or what we expect. God reaches in and does a miracle. Now, question, um, does God still do miracles? Yes, he does. We're all on the same page with that. Thank goodness. There are some who believe that miracles ceased. I'm telling you what, I don't know what we would do if miracles ceased in the past. And we were no longer without that hope. We pray for miracles all the time. Um, Vicki, your son-in-law, just last week, had a miracle happen to him, right? This, this uh, young man thought he was putting saline or eye drops in his eyes. And instead, what he dropped in, I'm not sure why he had it. You may explain that for us. But he had a little bottle of acid as well that looked very similar. And he, by mistake, picked that up and dropped it in his eyes. Acid. What do you think acid does to a sensitive organ like the eye? It eats it alive, right? And, and thank the Lord, yes, he was blinded for a moment, but went to the emergency room, and after about five hours of flushing with water and saline solution, he still has his eyesight. And not only just his eyesight, but it's unimpaired. Am I correct about that? Now, who would say that's a miracle? I choose to believe that that is a miracle. That's no just common, uh, uh, the, it's not just the common work of emergency services. That's God's intervention. Um, and, and in many ways, I would say that that, that may have what, be what happened, not this specific miracle, but there may have been a miracle that prompted the writing of this psalm. Uh, now, what is our response to a miracle? Um, 
well, yay, God, that's awesome, right? Maybe that's what we do. Um, in Luke chapter 5, we see um, the Apostle Peter's response to a miracle. I'd just like to read that passage to you. Luke chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But when Simon Peter saw that, that what he saw was the fact that they just brought in this big haul of fish. This was them uh, encountering Jesus after the resurrection. And uh, Jesus sees them out on the lake and um, actually, no, this isn't after the resurrection. No, that's another time. This is Luke 5. This is early in his ministry. And, and Jesus, Jesus says, well, hey, Peter, drop your net on the other side of the boat just for granted. And, and, and Peter says, Lord, we fished all night. <laughs> we fished all night. And what's going on? Uh, okay, because you say so. He drops his net on the other side and boom, this great haul of fish. And this is Peter's response. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet. Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they, had which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. Don't fear, Peter. It's interesting that Peter fell down at Jesus' feet because he was awestruck. It's interesting Jesus perceives that as fear. And he's right. Being awestruck is being struck with fear. A righteous fear, a fear that hallows God. He says, don't fear. From now on, you'll be catching men, not fish. In John chapter 20, um, we read, again, this is, this is after the resurrection. John chapter 20, we read the story of Thomas and his experience with the Lord. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. This is after Thomas had heard of Jesus' resurrection, and he said, but unless I see his wounds and put my hand in them, I will not believe. And here he is. Jesus came and the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your, with your finger and see my hands, and reach here with your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Just no other response to the miracle of who Jesus is and his appearing. Now, um, when miraculous intervention happens in our lives, it breaks us down honestly to the essential truth that God is God and we are not. Only God can do that. We can't even begin to even imagine it, much less do it. But it also breaks us it breaks us open to worshiping him and obedience. Um, and that's why, I think, in some respects, the psalmist goes on with verses 2 through 5. 
And he begins to un unpack when God speaks. We, we worship and we find ourselves open to hearing the voice of the Lord. And the Lord says, when I select an appointed time, is it I who judge with, it is I who judge with equity. The Lord and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars, Selah. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. Verse 2, when I select the appointed time, number one, God is the Lord of time. He, it's his choice when he acts. He is sovereign, and we are subject to his agenda. Amen? Um, part of becoming a follower of Jesus is recognizing that fact and allowing him that sovereignty. Now I say allowing him that sovereignty. He's sovereign whether or not we allow him or not, period. But when we allow him to have sovereign reign over our life, that means that we yield to him in his direction, whatever it is. Uh, and it's not our agenda anymore. It's his agenda that we enter into. Um, I have to say that, that uh, every single area of our life and ministry, even in the church, are subject to frustration. And I say that because God's timing is his timing, and his timing is not always our timing. We plan our days out, but God orders our steps. And, and uh, we need to allow the, the, uh, allow the Lord in his sovereignty to do what he will when he will. Some of us have been praying for healing for years or praying for salvation for our loved ones for years. And we wonder, Lord, we keep knocking. We're the persistent widow. We keep knocking on the door of heaven. When is it going to happen, Lord? And the Lord's response to us is, in my time. In my time. Same is true for revival. We can't, we can't stir up and do, uh, do, do certain things in order to stir up revival. Some, of, some have pointed out very aptly that revival is, is uh, that which comes uh, as the result of much prayer. I would say amen and amen to that. But the reality is much prayer will not cause revival to come. It's God's choice to send that when he does. What he's looking for in that is willing hearts, readiness to pursue what he has when he calls. Now, uh, Jesus told his disciples in Acts uh, 1, chapter 1, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in on his own authority. Now, that understanding, allowing God to be God in his time, is, is key to us uh, being able to move through life with the confidence that God is going to sow this up eventually. That's kind of what 
we, we uh, will read in the rest of this song. Now, uh, let's continue. Um, it was I who judge with equity is the second half of verse 2. It is I who judge with equity. The word equity is translated evenness or uprightness, straightness, equity. It, uh, and God declares himself to be upright, just, straight. And note that when he, when he dispenses his decisions is up to him. His judgment is indeed upright, but the timing of it, again, is up to him. Um, now, is, is the psalmist here talking about uh, an immediate judgment in their given circumstances, or is he speaking about the ultimate judgment at the end of time? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, probably both in some respect, but I think as we look at the rest of this psalm, we will discover that it primarily is, the psalmist is primarily speaking about the latter or the, the end of time, God's summary of all things. Look at verse 3. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. Hmm. When does that happen? <laughs> That's the final judgment, right? Um, and and Second um, uh, Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 10, the apostle writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That speaks of melting, right? It's curious to me how the, how the, the psalmist is on board with God's judgment at the end of time. Wow. Revelation chapter 20. Uh, verse, verse 11 and then 13 and 14. This is, uh, this is the Apostle John, uh, his vision of the final judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from, those, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. What does that mean? Earth and heaven fled away. Well, it, indeed, it looks and sounds like that imagery, even of the melting. It fled away. It, it, it was dispersed. Verse 13, And the sea gave, gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown down into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? This idea of judgment. Note, however, that in John's revelation, that's the end of chapter 20. Guess what? chapter 21 starts with verse 1 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea 
You see, God's judgment, God's severe judgment for those who call upon his name leads to recreation. Not only in our lives individually, but certainly even in the end times, the end of all things. Let me back up a little bit. It's true of us individually as well. How do we come, how do we come to God? We, we come to God empty, right? We don't come to God full of ourselves and full of capability. In fact, he's going to talk a little bit about that later in this, in this psalm. We don't come full of ourselves. We come empty. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are those who know their need and most specifically know their need of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. So at the end of ourselves, at the end of judgment, at the end even of our guilt personally, we experience rebirth. And it's, it's, it's not a, it, it's not a, uh, it's not reincarnation. Okay, it's not the system working. It's God imparting brand new life. That's what, that's what our salvation experience is all about. It's amazing to me how we have the gospel right here in Psalm 75. Isn't that amazing? Uh, verse 3 continues. It is I who have firmly set its pillars, speaking of the earth, now, pillars, what are pillars? We've got, we've got posts in here, right? Posts and pillars are the same thing. What do they do? They hold up the roof, right? They are, if you will, the foundation of the roof. Um, I have firmly set. This word firmly set means to balance, to regulate, to measure, um, to make even or level to be equal. In other words, God, God has established the foundation of the earth in such a way that it is perfectly balanced. There is nothing out of place. I love this imagery. Um, it, it's seen also in the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Remember who Hannah is? Hannah is Samuel's mother, right? And uh, she gave birth to young Samuel, who became a pro the prophet of Israel, who ended up anointing King David. And uh, in, in his, his, her pregnancy was a miracle. She was, she was fairly old when she got pregnant. And uh, she committed her way to the Lord so much so that she said, look, I, if, if this comes through, if you give me a child, Lord, I'll give him back to you. And that's precisely what she did. She came to the temple and gave her son for service to the Lord. And in, the, in her response, we, I, I encourage you to read it um, there in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. In, that, in her response, she she makes this boast of the Lord. He raises the poor from the dust 
And he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles, nobles, and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. Now, if we t uh, look again at that word set, it means it includes the idea of balance and even of equality. And what does, what does Hannah bring to the fore? She says, the needy, those who are raised up from the ash heap, those who are poor, raised up from the dust, will be seated with nobles. And what do we have but equity? We have balance. That's, that's how God views us. We're no, long, we're no less uh, important than any ruler in all the earth. We are, we, and that's not to puff us up. It's, it's to give us a sense of awe of God's judge, justice. Now, after judgment, the foundations are restored and God consummates his kingdom. We read about that in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 21. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 these words, For as in, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will, uh, all will be made alive. But again, there's equity right there. Everyone's going to die, but in Christ we all rise. But each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming, or those who belong to Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. In other words, again, there is that that spreading of balance and equity. Now, um, God's this is God's final wondrous work, uh, spoken of in verse one. Following verse three, we have the word selah, and we those who've been studying with us for a while know that the word selah means pause, take a break, take a deep breath, contemplate. And, and in this situation, I'm thinking it's a big exhale after talking about the final judgment. That's pretty heavy stuff, right? Let's take a big exhale. And then in verse 4, he says, I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. In light of the coming judgment, God speaks to the boastful, the pride, prideful, the wicked. And um, it's interesting to note that biblical ethics, as we, as we think about justice, it's always tied to the eschatological or the ap apocalyptic judgment of God. God will have the final say. That's what our, that's what our blessed hope is, right? God is going to have the final say. Jeremiah writes in chapter 9, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Don't be boastful about yourself or your own might or your own reach of power. Boast in the fact that you know the Lord. Second half of verse 4 in, in Psalm 75, and to the wicked, that is those who are morally wrong, they're, they're concretely bad people, okay? Uh, criminals, lawbreakers. He says, don't lift up the horn. Do not lift your horn up on high. This uh, question of the horn, what is, what is that? Well, it, it speaks of uh, a symbol of power. Um, Psalm 18, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. It speaks of strength and power and authority. And again, the, the thought he is don't be boasting in those things, that power that you think you have. Isaiah chapter 2 um, speaks of a day of reckoning that is coming. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. Wow. Where does that put the boastful person? Squarely in the crosshairs of judgment. Second half of verse 5. Do not speak with insolent pride. This is um, speaking of an unbending neck. Um, on the, the neck that burdens are carried. Um, and speaking of uh, the idea of a yoke. And insolent pride is, a, is the idea of an unbending neck, not willing to humble itself, not willing to bow. Verse 10 also speaks of all the horns of the wicked he will cut off. That's the final judgment. However, in the present, the sense of the end issues is a warning designed to bring us to repentance. In other words, this, idea, this speaking of judgment is here because it is, there, it is an effort to say, we need to get our act together and repent. We need to soften up this stiff neck. We need to acknowledge God for who he is. God's words are stern, and his judgment is sure, but his grace is sufficient. Amen? We count on that. Verses 6 through 8, there's some sober reflection going on here uh, on, on God's judgment. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. 
but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For the cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. That's scary language, isn't it? Well, the psalmist is meditating upon on, um, this idea of judgment. Absolutely. And um, this gives us a clue as to our own spiritual health and how we, we need to be mindful, cognizant of the fact that God's, God's serious about this. When he says he's not going to He's not going to have anything to do with the proud. We need to take that seriously. There's a point at which um, we need to back up and really look at our lives and really contemplate, Lord, where am I at? Where am I at? Um, the psalmist writes, David in Psalm 51, Lord, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my wicked ways. That is something that, that um, we need to do on a regular basis, lest we begin to think that we have it all put together. Now, um, just a note here. When we receive God's word, what do we do? I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of our time together say, here or Sunday morning. Sunday morning. Sunday morning is a great illustration of this. There are some of us in the habit of saying, seriously, you've been teaching for 40 minutes already. It's, it's time to bring this to a close because I have an appointment at Luby's Cafe with, with, the, uh, with the, uh, my friends. And we rush out of here and go have breakfast with our favorite people. Now, is there something wrong with having breakfast with our favorite people? No, not at all. But we should take some instruction here. And, and this is my thought. It's important for us to sit and ponder what God has said. Regardless of whether or not we liked it. Okay, it's important for us to take some time out and reflect on what God has just said and what does it have to do with my life presently. I guarantee you that it has something to do with our life presently. It's not simply some archaic, antique liturgy that we've just read or heard about. It's not just some ancient manuscript that we studied. God is alive and active, and his word penetrates even to the soul. And it is important for us to reflect about that. Um, you didn't know it, but I was just on my soapbox, so I'm going to get off of that now. Um, Verse 6, for not from the east nor from the west nor from the desert comes exaltation. 
Um, what, is, what does the uh, psalmist receive as he reflects on God's words? Well, um, exaltation doesn't come from ge geographical locations, east, west, north, or south, or the wilderness. It doesn't even originate on this planet for any, uh, after all. Exaltation comes from, the, from God because he is judge. He puts down one and exalts another, in verse 7. It is before him that we stand or fall. It is God who establishes that. And we could say you can look wherever you want for exaltation, to be put up. And um, the truth is no one does that except God. To the wicked, he will give the cup of judgment, as we read in verse 8. This cup is held in his hand since he is sovereign. He is the one who holds the cup. Moreover, it is fully mixed. It is ready to be consumed, drained completely, down to the dregs. That um, reminds me a bit of Revelation chapter 14. Speaking of the worshipers of the beast, then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. What is, what is this um, wine that is mixed with what? I honestly don't know. But it sounds frightening, doesn't it? Mixed, mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. To stand before an angry God is heart-stopping. Verse 9 of Psalm 75, we have our response, or the psalmist's response. But as for me, I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. In light of the realities of this judgment that, that the psalmist has been speaking about, the psalmist writes, I will declare. And we've said it numerous times. Here is that very intentional declarative statement this is what i will do this is my response and again i have to say worship is a choice worship and honoring god is a choice that we make it is not something worship doesn't just happen to us if we if we were here tonight hoping somehow that we would be, just be lured into worship and we would have this really amazing, wonderful encounter with God because we were just drawn into it. I'm sorry. That's not what worship is about. Worship is a choice. And here we see 
the psalmist saying, but as for me, I will declare it. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. Now, this word declare means to stand out to, and to stand out boldly, um, even to announce. But more than that, it also includes the idea of standing out in manifesting something. The, the difference is this. You can stand on a street corner and loudly declare something, right? Or you can wear particularly clo particular clothing or act in a certain way that says the same thing just as loud or more loudly. In other words, the manifestation of praise is, is, is there. Um, it's conspicuous. I, 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 again, what is, what is the manifestation of praise? Andy talked about it previously. We worship in everything we do. We do all to the glory of God, according to the Apostle Paul. And, and if that is our mindset, truly what we bring to God in our everyday living is honest worship. Um, the content of, of this witness or this manifestation again, is to, to sing praise uh, to God, the God of Israel, that is the God of Jacob. You know, do you remember God changed Jacob's name to Israel? Do you remember that story? Jacob and Israel are the same thing. And he, but bottom line, he's speaking of, of uh, the, the father of the nation or the nation itself. Likewise, when the heavenly host sees the lamb upon his throne, they too break out into a song of triumph. Revelation 5, I love this passage beginning in verse 8. When they had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song for those who have trouble with this business of singing new songs all the time, it's a biblical thing to do. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with, with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then the angels exalt the Lamb. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And all God's people said, Amen. It's about, it's about unmitigated worship. And what is God's response? Verse 10. And all the horns of the wicked will be cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. 
you're saying, I thought God, God's response was going to be, thank you. Thanks for all this worship. God's response includes judgment. And we need to understand that. It is part and parcel of who he is because he is righteous. God cannot be anything other than righteous. And so when he encounters pride, when he encounters wrong, when he encounters wickedness, there is going to be that judgment. He has the last word. He has the last word. But listen to this. However, last verse, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. In other words, <laughs> the righteous are those who not only for the psalmist live according to the Torah, but for us, those who have been bought with the blood of the Lamb that we just heard about. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your own blood men from every tribe, nation, and people. We are counted among the righteous because we are covered in that blood. The blood of the righteous one of God. And that's the gospel, isn't it? If we're waiting for God's judgment, he will act. And his wondrous deeds will be amazing. And they will be the culmination of justice and righteousness according to his name and his word. He will speak his wondrous word. But how can we be sure that we will not be counted among those who are cut off? The I, I don't know if I can say this or not, but perhaps the most wondrous word of all is spoken in Jesus, the incarnation. John chapter one, the gospel of John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, truth is part of God's fullness. Truth is where judgment emanates from. But he's also full of grace. And grace is where salvation happens. For those who call out and say, God, I need you. I cannot, I cannot even hope to breathe in your presence, much less stand except by your grace. 
Jesus is the one who makes us righteous. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, one of my favorite passages, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What is he talking about? All things that would be counted lost. That's his pedigree. That's his religious pedigree. All the stuff he did right. He says, I count it all as loss or as garbage, rubbish, if you will. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead his power <laughs> his horn Jesus himself is ours it's his power the power of the resurrection that is manifest in us Romans 8, verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, there will be a resurrection. And so we too can sing our praises to the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, because he will judge uprightly. Thanks be to God, he is not looking at us apart from Jesus. Because it's only in his righteousness that we have any hope of being with him in eternity. Who knew all of that was in Psalm 7? You know, every week I prepare two psalms thinking that I, we should be able to get to the next one. And every week, here we are. Ten verses. But aren't they full of glorious wonder? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your provision for us. That your provision for us is not that we should... Um, not that we should be exalted apart from you. Rather, Lord, that we should be exalted in you, even as you are exalted. That you lift up the righteous, Lord. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would spare us of anything that would cause us to look to ourselves and our own capacity for salvation or standing before you. Spare us from that. Enable us, Lord, to pray the prayer honestly. Search me and know my heart. 
see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, as we pray that honestly, we know that you indeed deliver your revelation to us individually. And that as you do so, and as we bring whatever you bring to mind to us before you for forgiveness, your promise is not only that you you forgive us of that sin upon our confession, but you also cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that is our only hope. And in you, we rejoice greatly. We rejoice indeed with the angels and the heavenly beings surrounding the throne. And we would say with them, Lord, tonight, be exalted. Be exalted, O God. For you are worthy. The lamb that was slain, you are worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of the week. We'll be here on Saturday evening and on Sunday morning. Come back and fellowship with us. Enjoy.